It's the M&S Monthly Podcast Show. Michael and Simon will share their best tips and secrets to provide inspiration for fellow entrepreneurs and business leaders. I hope you like the show. Let's get it started. And on today's M&S Monthly Podcast Show, we're going to be talking about the opportunities that we face today and what we can learn if we look back into history. And I I refer to the time of the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak and how many people died during this time and what happened 10 years later. So, Simon, why is learning about history so important today by looking back to try and find the opportunities that we have right now ahead of us? Because some may have said that if we, are, if we were living in 1918 with a Spanish flu outbreak and 50 million people perished, what are our opportunities right now going forward? Yeah, well, I think the start point, Michael, is to see if we can learn from history, isn't it? Before we go marching on and making any decisions regarding our businesses or the nation or economic policies, if we can learn from history, it might help us to have that hindsight uh, to make better decisions. And I know that you and I were talking about this on our walk the other day regarding the 1920s period, you know, 100 years ago. Can we learn anything from 100 years ago compared to today? Isn't it amazing how 100 years later, it seems that certain things are repeating itself. Certainly, we will never have a First World War again. And the first First World War started in 1914. We've got the Russians on the Ukrainian border right now. But I don't think that the two definitely aren't related. But, you know, 100 years it's taken us to kind of find ourselves living just as we emerge from this COVID-19 pandemic. And as you quite rightly say, we were on our Pilgrim's Way walk the other day and we're thinking, how does this time serve us, help us? reflect and learn the lessons that people a hundred years ago were experiencing. Yes. Yeah. Because there are some similarities and up until the time of really looking into this, I thought there were more similarities than there actually are, you know, because you look at that period, there was a pandemic and it was, wiping out millions of people. I think estimates are between 50 and 100 million, you know, from a population in Europe that had already suffered as a result of the war. So there was a double whammy going on. This was global, though, wasn't it, the Spanish flu? It, It did go global, but it was mostly Europe, to be fair. I mean, when you look at the way we live our lives now, any pandemic is always going to be global from now on because of the sheer ability that we have to travel anywhere at any time, you know, and and you look at the number of planes in the sky even now and the destinations, it doesn't take long for us, a small virus to start somewhere and suddenly be all over the world. They didn't have that back then, but they did have economic problems. They had 
huge amounts of debt, which arguably we have huge amount of debt. The government reserves were low, especially compared to the amount of gold that we had. Well, the gold standard went out the window in the 1970s in the UK. So we're in a similar scenario in that respect, I think. But there are some major differences which mean that I don't think that we're going to go into a Great Depression because back in the 1920s, you had the, all these double whammies of high debt, uh, high deaths. You had huge levels of unemployment kicking in. You had prices dropping through the floor and you actually had deflation. And in my view, deflation is far worse than inflation. You only have to lie on an airbed to know that, Michael. <laughs> I haven't laid on an airbed for many years, Simon. I haven't been able to go and sit around the beach in a hot climate. And let me tell you, it's uh, February in the UK right now. And I have to say, as you know, as the whole of the population in the UK know, it's really, really cold but it's a really interesting point you make you know so we've just come out of the first world war we've then gone into a spanish flu outbreak you imagine what it would have been like the deaths not only from the first world war but from the spanish flu outbreak as well and the reason why we didn't have that much reserve simon is because all the um, the uh, stimulus, well, is it stimulus? Probably not, actually. All the governments around the, you know, in Europe, literally, were investing in armory to fight the enemy of the First World War. And therefore, when you say this current episode is different, I assume you mean we had less money in our pockets then because there wasn't enough money to go around because the government were buying weapons or producing manufacturing weapons. And but now the government have bailed out the population by offering furlough and grants and loans. So I think there are similarities, but the wealth distribution is so much more different. Oh, it's it's remarkably different, definitely. But there are two two things there in that there was a new kid on the block in the 1920s compared to now. And that was credit. People could go and buy items on a credit plan, which was a new thing. So this buy now, pay later, uh, people really got hold of it and thought, wow, you know, I can have, you know, a new television or a new car and I don't have to pay for it now I can buy it on credit and there were lots of very small credit agencies and very small banks particularly in the US I think there was something like 8,000 different banks and 4,000 of them ended up going bust as a result of the market crash that then happened because of this accumulation of you know deaths and debt and spiraling credit. Um, and, and also there was a huge increase in uh, production, you know, new items coming on the market like cars, like irons, like, you know, things that made the 
it easier to operate the household. But there was also a significant increase in food production, uh, particularly because, you know, we had to feed the great armies of the First World War. They had to be fed and we need to mass produce, start mass producing food. So farms needed to produce food quicker. They started investing in new machinery to help do that. And then their farms ended up failing because when the war ended and, and all this accumulation of credit started to hit, the stock market crashed, people started losing their jobs, people started going bust. There was no stimulus from the government, very little. The government, certainly in the US uh, and in the UK, allowed credit agencies and allowed banks to go under. And then people couldn't get their money. So all of a sudden, people were bankrupt, not through their own fault. And therefore, the whole economy in the 1920s and into the 1930s was starved of cash, completely starved. And we all know, particularly as businessmen, don't we, that cash is like the air we breathe. Cash is king. You know, we need to generate not just profits, but we need to hold on to cash in order to thrive as a business. So I think there's some big differences now because we're seeing governments pour cash into the economy, print cash as a stimulus. Not only the UK government, though, Simon, globally, the global governments have been pumping cash stimulus into their economy to keep it afloat. And, and do you think that's the right way of doing it compared to before? Or what's the disadvantages of doing that, do you think? I think personally, it's a better way of doing it than before, because before, if you don't do it, you cause this deflation, which causes mass unemployment and all the complications and problems and poverty and all those horrible things that society faces. Whereas if you pour stimulus into the economy, it is like putting a pump into that blow up bed, you know, and you're pumping and you're pumping and you're pumping and the bed is getting bigger and bigger. It causes inflation. Yeah, but how do you control inflation? And one may say one of the ways is by increasing your um, mortgage, your interest rates. And they're planning for rate rises this year alone. So I don't know about you, but, you know, if my mortgage doubles overnight, I think like so many other people, we will be struggling. Well, it's that that we're talking today, isn't it? Because the Bank of England have just put the base rate up by a quarter of a percent. So it's doubled the base rate today from a quarter to 0.5. And that, you know, that is the only way that we know historically, at least, and economically, this is where you could do with an economics professor on the call, um, but economically, the only way to try and control inflation that I know of and you know of from history is put interest rates up. And you know, it wasn't that long ago, it was certainly in my lifetime, when interest rates were at 15%. Um, and everybody especially all the young people have been used now to interest rates for the past 10 years or maybe a little bit more being at below 1%. So mortgages are much more affordable and people may have overstretched. And if those mortgage rates start going up, 
households have now got the double whammy of massive inflation because the government are talking at five to seven percent, aren't they? I don't know where they get that figure from, Michael, when I've seen petrol go up by 50 percent in the last 12 months. We've just been told that uh, gas and electric prices are going to go up by 50 percent. You know, this will all have a huge knock on effect. All of my clients are tell me the prices of their raw materials, wood, paper, steel are doubling, trebling in some cases. So I think under inflation is being underestimated. And the only response to that is likely to be interest rate increases. So if any of our clients, uh, sorry, if any of our listeners right now are sitting on variable rate loans, variable rate credit card debt, variable rate mortgages, I would recommend they investigate fixed rates very quickly because the fixed rate market will also start going up soon. But you know, just now you said deflation was a bad thing, which meant inflation was a good thing. And what the way you've just described it, I can't see any good coming out of high inflation. And I have to say you are right, because where the government gets 7% from, I don't know. Because you only have to look at the stock market. And that's rose 34%. So not only have you got the fuel at the uh, pumps, verging on 50%, and the energy costs to heat and light our homes is being increased. And it's really quite interesting how that cap put an awful lot of gas supplies in the UK out of business. So it was only going to happen one way anyway. But I can't see much good in that. Well, I think if I could just draw an analogy, because, you know, we we like analogies, don't we, Michael? (laughs) Um, If you can picture a seesaw, at one end is inflation and the other end is deflation. And if it's going up and down, up and down, up and down, that's not a stable economy. That's all over the place. Uh, Whether it's inflation or deflation, they are both bad. If they're if they're very high, either way, high deflation, high inflation is very bad. What we want is a fairly stable, um, flat seesaw that has that stability. And in reality, I, I would argue that austerity helped us to achieve that in the previous 10 years. And we have had a fairly you know, comfortable ride when it comes to low levels of inflation, low levels of interest rates for the past 10 years. But it's literally, it's like a curve. It's gone through the roof and it will go through the roof. And I don't know how governments will control inflation. So high inflation is bad, but I think high deflation is worse because with deflation comes massive unemployment. And what we're seeing now is actually quite high levels of employment, aren't we? So there's a a positive scenario there. As long as high levels of employment continue, we have the means to start to try and pull that inflation back round. But the only way that you can do that is to stop people spending in a way, you know, take more money out of their pocket before they can spend it, which means higher mortgage, higher gas electric, higher rates, higher taxes, 
national insurance going up. So we are all going to have less money in our pocket anyway. But as a business, how do you reconcile that if you're going to be selling less product? The danger then is it tips the other way. You have to lay people off. That causes more unemployment. That could spiral you from inflation to deflation. So I think it's a very difficult balancing act that we're in right now. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, to be honest. And, you know, if you can, if you can put your put yourself in the majority of the population in the UK and across the world right now, if you're going to be paying more for your gas, more for your electricity, more for your fuel, uh, more for your foods, because we haven't really touched on the fact that when you go into the local supermarket, your foods are much more expensive. And, you know, with inflation as it is, there will be a result for business. And I think the result is salaries will need to go up. But the companies won't have the, the cash to do that. And it may be a better option to start laying people off in the same way. Not that I would do that, but it certainly is a, is a consideration because we're all getting poorer because of the raw material increased cost. So we're painting a really bleak picture on it. And if you, you said, you know, in the 1920s, we were heading for the Great Depression. Can you imagine mental illness is on a high right now, driven by the pandemic, with the inflation, with the fact that people may be losing their homes, may be losing their jobs. It's more expensive to eat. And, and uh, there's a real squeeze on the pocket. I'm not sure exactly where this is going to end up. But I don't think we're going to know next week or next month or next year. The runway is about three, four years down the line. Again, this is why I think looking at history can be helpful because as business owners, we need to look ahead three to five years from now. We need to start thinking what might happen in the next three to five years. Run some scenarios. You know, what's the worst case scenario for my business? What's the best case scenario? Sit down and spend some really good quality time and draw that classic SWOT analysis, looking at your strengths, your weaknesses, the opportunities and the threats and really hone in on that threats box to see where can we deal with those threats right now and turn those threats into potential opportunities. Because if they're a threat for your business, there'll be a threat, the same threat for your competitors. So, it, it, you know, at times like this, Michael, sadly, it's I think the next three to five years will be about the survival of the fittest. And as business owners and entrepreneurs, we need to be fit. We need to be sharp. We need to make quick decisions. We need to make flexible decisions, ones that, you know, where it's OK to do a U-turn if we think we might actually have got that wrong or suddenly the economy swings or something changes because there are so many influencers now, aren't there, from Russia sitting on the border of Ukraine to China 
to you know to what's going on in the world globally as well as what's happening in our nation yeah but simon you know with all due respect you haven't got a crystal ball and this is so 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 complex that i don't think even the governments know the best route out of this and what to do they think they know by putting up the interest rates and by the way this is a second interest rate rise we've had this year alone and i actually think it's a thing of the uh, the, the 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 thing of the year every month we will get an increase in some way shape or form I, I think the very first thing that business owners should be doing right now is looking at what they're borrowing and make sure it's in fixed rates seriously because there is the potential just as you've said for interest rates to go up next month and next month and the month after you've already told me in your industry you've had or you're facing four price rises in the next 12 months not what we used to didn't we we used to with trepidation sit down and think oh shall we put a price rise for this year no maybe not maybe we won't maybe we'll get away with it and i had many clients who hadn't increased their prices for three four five years and and now we're in a place where we might have to be writing to our customers every two or three months with another price rise in order to stay in the game and if that's the case, and that is the speed at which inflation can travel, economically, governments will favour the interest rate model to try and counter it. Now, there might be other ways, and I don't know what they are, and thankfully I'm not in government, but whatever they decide, we are going to be affected by their decisions. Hence why I was saying we need to make flexible decisions and run our business like a speedboat, that if that great oil tanker of a government makes a decision and it's going to affect us, and we know that the thing is, Michael, we do know these things are coming. We know that in April, the national insurance will go up significantly. So we have some time to make some kind of adjustment, either to our pricing or to our overheads or to our staffing. So we have got to start thinking about that. I was with a, a board of directors today and they've made the decision today to switch their salaries down into dividends. They, they, they made the opposite decision two years ago because they were looking to, to move houses and buy a house and buy a nice house and they needed to show that in their salary. So they switched into salaries. But because of the national insurance hike from April, they're going to switch their salaries into dividends. And I thought that was quite clever. They still need to earn a certain amount of money, but they won't pay national insurance on the dividend. You know, you made a point just now about the government kind of uh, they've got to get to grips with this whole event. But what do you say about the manufacturers who are experiencing high raw uh, material costs right now and the only way that they can survive to keep producing the product is to raise the price so i don't actually think it's the government that could do a lot about this apart from uh, you know expecting an increase from the manufacturer to to kind of cover their running costs and by the way uh, i did say to you uh, while we was on the pilgrim's way walk a couple of weeks ago or last week 
about, I was told at the back end of 2021 that in the office supply industry that I'm in, uh, we, would be going, we would be getting a price increase every quarter through 2022 because it's all built in where they're at. But let me tell you, we had a fair price increase in January. We've had another price increase in February. So if this is a cause and in an effect of what's to come, I think we might be in line with an increase every single month. So you mentioned the national insurance is going up. You know, price at the pumps, they're not coming down. Price in the supermarkets, they're all going up. I went to a restaurant last week. The meal has gone up. A pint of beer has gone up quite significantly. And if you choose and analyze these raw basic materials like a, a loaf of bread, a pint of milk, uh, how much to spend on your electricity, your gas for your home, I can only really see misery. If you go back to the crystal ball, how do you protect yourself against that? Well, just going back to your price of beer, Michael, that must really hurt. <laughs> well, I haven't had a beer for uh, since that time, to be honest, Simon. £6.95 for a pint of Foster's. Wow. I remember when it was £2.50. And it hasn't gone up that much in a week or uh, in a couple of years. But can you believe it? Yeah, well, we went to a hotel the other evening and it was a pint of lager, a glass of a large glass of white wine, two packets of crisps, 18 pounds. Wow. Was that expensive? That did. I was almost crying. <laughs> it, it hurt. It was that's expensive. I mean, and, and the problem then for the for the poor hospitality industry who have suffered enough is that in a time of inflation like this, where the what's left in your wallet at the end of the month is less, then they are going to suffer. And um, uh, because it because it's all back to the luxury, you know, the luxuries that we have. So it's in it's very interesting days, isn't it? It's historic days. And I think I would encourage business owners to meet regularly, to go to networking events, to have monthly board meetings and maybe even weekly board meetings with the speed of uh, change that we're going to start to see and just have conversations like this, mull it over, think on it, think on it and, you know, be ready to make some pretty sharp decisions when you need to. But it's a lot easier said than done, right? It is a lot easier said than done. There's no magic bullet. And, and we are making history, aren't we? We're making history because I don't know a time in history when you've had this quadruple whammy, if, it, if that's what it is, of you know, a pandemic, Brexit, which must be painful for so many industries right now, fishing and all the other industries that are affected by truck by you know purchasing importing and exporting from Europe that's a double whammy the whammy of you know um healthcare mental health challenges that we have six million people on waiting lists 
for the NHS and basically an NHS in crisis because I don't believe they've managed this pandemic well either. Um, but but and that's controversial. I know that might upset a few. But I have to give credit to the NHS workers. I think they've been diligent and very, very mindful about what it is they're doing to protect the the people, the community, our neighbours, our family in the UK. And you know, the other thing you didn't add on that statement was the non-vaxxers within the NHS. Now, I know a couple of weeks ago, there was a big, big protest in the West End of London for by the NHS staff uh, who had not taken the vax. And, and how the government sometime in April, will be sacking those people. So when you mention the great pandemic and the NHS are, can't survive, you imagine the government sacking all those people. But actually, quite rightly, the government have seen sense because I was only reading in the newspaper a couple of days ago how the government have done a U-turn on that point. So the non-vaxxers who went out there protesting two weeks ago, I think their voice has been heard, and quite rightly. Yes, quite, quite rightly, because we have to balance the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic with six million people suffering with other illnesses and diseases. It's, you know, we only ever talk about COVID, but the... <laughs> You know, there's many, many people suffering right now, and we have to address that. We're already 80,000 doctors and nurses short, and we're about to add nearly another 80,000 to that number. It's, it makes it impossible. So that's definitely quite the right decision in, in my book. But it's one of those, you know, when you start to list the things, I think if you look at things in on the positive side of the balance sheet, so to speak, you know, the banks are very strong in terms of their liquidity right now. They have to be because they have to meet regular regulatory levels. So they're in a good position. They can they can be a source of cash uh, to businesses and to individuals. We just need to be aware of what that cash might cost. Remember, it is the government's money, a lot of it, because of the stimulus. So the government did fill up the banks in in effect, because I was amazed at how long furlough went on for. And from a business owner perspective, I think that was right, to be honest. Because I wouldn't have liked to have come out of the pandemic and there were, had been no furlough. It's taken them long enough, but the banks are back in profit, though, Michael. So we are seeing, you know, those uh, stakes, government stakes reducing in the banks, which is good. But you're right. The, the government are also propping up the whole economy with stimulus. But that there has to come a point at which that has to stop because that a lot of that is borrowed money. And that's the reason why Rishi Sunak is you know, giving with one hand and taking with the other today with his announcement about trying to help households with these um, rises in electric bills by giving a payment that has to be paid back. I mean, it's a very small token gesture in reality, but it's a big gesture financially for the nation. 
So I think there are some differences to the 1920s when we had the Great Depression. The stock market at the moment is strong. There's a lot of money invested in the stock market, probably more than ever before. It's very diverse, more diverse than it was in the 1920s. So it might survive. You know, we may not see a big market crash. If we don't, then that's good news. If we do, then maybe we look at the consequences again of what happened in 1929 when they had the last, you know, great crash in the stock market. And then what happened, what followed from that in the 1930s. So, again, the situation's fluid, isn't it? We're in a situation right now where we can only really, although we must plan and have in our head where do we want to be in three to five years time and what things should we have in play with that in mind, we also have to be looking at what's going on today, what's happening this week, what's happening next month and manage our short term planning as well as we manage our long term planning. It's a really interesting point uh, how at the start of the pandemic, the government were giving. I remember we had a lot of companies doing really, really well. They call it the PP gold rush two years ago. And we get that. We know it. Even the government were handing big contracts out to their family and friends and neighbours. But I actually think right now it's about uh, the government taking back. And we're seeing it. And I don't know how far it will go, but we are seeing it in real life. And we are seeing it even in the local restaurants and the local bars, at the, the supermarkets as well. But from a business perspective, based on everything we've said, I know you said be flexible and have those regular meetings, those SWOT analysis kind of discussions. But where do you go from here? I had a really good conversation last week with one of my clients, Michael, and one of the things that we sat down and did, this might be a bit more controversial again. (laughs) One of the things we sat down and did was we went on to Companies House website, which is a brilliant resource. We pulled up our own company accounts, which Uh, only show the balance sheet they don't show the profit and loss but they show the balance sheet and we looked at the strength of our balance sheet as a business we then wrote down the list of our top six competitors and we looked up their balance sheets and it was surprising that four out of those six balance sheets looked extremely weak And for me, if you have a strong balance sheet right now, you will weather the storm much better than a business with a weak balance sheet. Because if you have a weak balance sheet and you've been taking lots of money out of this business over the past five years, 10 years, and you haven't really made your business strong, I believe that the next three to five years will be a there'll be a time of cleansing for the weaker businesses. So have a look at that, because if, though, if you see that you have competitors who might be a bit of a pain, they might be stealing your clients, they might be offering, you know, better terms, whatever it is, then watch them like a hawk and be ready to pounce if they fail. That surprises me. 
that they have a weaker balance sheet because with all this stimulus, I would expect their balance sheet to be quite strong because as a director of the company, you can't use government money, I mean, loans and grants for your own personal use. So it's got to be sitting in the business somewhere. So why why is the balance sheet weak? I think um, probably for a whole host of reasons, but one of them will be that they have taken too much money out, not or they've not left enough of the profits in from previous years. But that's always been the case, hasn't it? People have been spending above their means. Mm, mm. And when you referred to a point earlier about cash is king and the money sitting in your personal account rather than your business account. Yes, yes. Where is cash and where is it king in your personal account or in your business account? Because we know that if you starve your business, you're nine times out of ten starving your personal fortune or wealth. And your income as well. And the, the other thing that we talked about to last week, which might be helpful to listeners, is this particular business is having to stock up. So it's increasing its stocks because it's having to buy at prices that, you know, to take advantage of prices right now in anticipation that they will be going up. So they're actually increasing their stock holding. Now, the uh, downside to that could be if you do that and you think about your balance sheet in the assets column there, the current assets, you've only really got three things to play with debtors, stock, and cash. So, my guidance and advice on that would be if you're needing to increase the stock to take advantage and make sure your ability, you're, you've got the ability to supply and at prices that you can manage then make sure you're paying for that stock increase with a reduction in debtors and chase your debtors. Because we worked out that nearly 60% of the debtor book for this business was overdue. Now, it, it may not have been overdue by very much, a day in some cases, a week, one month, two months in some cases, even one or two cases of three months overdue. So we have to be masters at managing that asset part of the balance sheet, the debtors, stock and cash. And I think businesses that really master that in the next couple of years will be the ones that come through the other end. You know, I think within small business, people's debt has always been 60, 90 days, 120 days late. And it's really interesting when you look at a debtors list, how much debt does end up in those end periods. But coming on to your other point about putting stock in the warehouse, remember, putting stock in the warehouse, I think is quite foolish for a number of reasons. It eats into your cash reserves and it sits on the shelf. If your debtors are long on 120 days and you pay your suppliers on 30 days, which is quite normal, you're going to be heavily out of the money. The other key here, in my opinion, is this. You're going to be paying storage 
as well for that product. So why would you do it that way? Surely the most efficient way is chase your debtors. I totally, totally agree. And if you can invest in technology, buy the product once you sell the product. Then you can reduce your warehouse space and all the logistics that go around it. Because, you know, the winners in the next couple of years, in my opinion, are the, win, are the, are the, are the companies and people and business that really get to grips by making things really, really efficient. So you sell the product, then you go to buy it. And then you chase your debtors in to pay for the products once you've sold it. And, and naturally, there might be a lot of companies, Simon, that have a long lead time on getting in the product from the Middle East, from around the country. But So you have to uh, uh, monitor that and put measurements in place with regard to that, but certainly holding product on the shelf is extremely painful when you can't see it moving. And I know this from experience. Yeah, I think let's just qualify what you're saying there with what I'm saying, because I actually believe we're both right. There's truth in what we're both saying there. To me, it depends on how far down the food chain you are. So if you're at the top of the food chain, in other words, you're a manufacturer and you, you know you're always manufacturing product X and you need paper or steel or wood, whatever, those raw materials to, to me. If you can buy forward or buy in those raw materials and stock up because you know you're going to be making them, that can be, that can be a wise move right now i think if you're further down the food chain and you're in where if you you're in wholesale or distribution or retail you're absolutely right michael you don't want stock sitting there on the shelf soaking up hoping someone's going to buy it you know you need the you need to manage down that stock part of the assets uh, section of the balance sheet to increase the cash element as much as you can so it's horses for courses and i'm sure if any listeners are sat there right now scratching their head they can contact either one of us can't they michael at any time and we'd be very happy to you know talk to them and help them and do what we can i actually i agree with what you're saying it also comes down to knowing your business knowing your market knowing your distribution network and your manufacturers and, and work on that supply chain. Because some years ago, I have to tell you, I was in um, Europe and I was amazed as I, as I drove through this port, how many Ford cars were sitting there at the port. There must have been absolutely thousands. And the question for you, Simon, were all those vehicles paid for and if they were paid for by the consumer, why were they, they not moving quicker than what I saw? So the answer to that question probably was this. They made the product, they made allocation to where that product, that vehicle was going. And then if it didn't go there, 
they would have to start undercutting the price to get it out of that ship, that that port, to get onto the boat. And, you know, any business over a period of time, one thing will happen if you don't continue increasing your sales. You will run out of money. And that's why business fails mostly, when they've got no more money. And the only thing where you're driving sales is by providing your product to people, not to be providing the product to sit in the port, to go and board a ship, to wherever it may go. And I thought that was ludicrous. And I think the winners today really do need to look into their supply chain network and say, hey, that product, do I need it today if I haven't sold it? And the money that it costs to buy the product, is it best served to remain in my bank? and let that money work hard for you in your bank or in your investments and not on the shelf. Yeah, I agree, Michael. I think the clever companies now, and we're seeing it in the marketplace, aren't we, with car manufacturers now who are moving more to um, made-to-order models. Amazon, you know, the book that you see on the screen when you press the button to order it, only then is it printed. Uh, You know, so these fast and efficient models of collect your cash and then print the book and and you get it next day how can you you know that that's a model that we should all aspire to in one sense with our businesses how can we make our business so efficient we get cash in quicker we turn product around quicker we do, we do it at a, a speed so that the margin that we make it, it doesn't matter if that margin is smaller because we're able to turn the volume. And it's an interesting conversation and we could go anywhere with it from now, couldn't we? But I'm conscious that our listeners will be needing to get off for their tea, Michael. And on that note, Simon, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And I really hope, like you, it helps our listeners Think about different things and different ways that they can start in business, stay in business for longer. On that note, is there any lasting comment that you would like to leave for our listeners from the podcast session tonight? Yeah, I like your last sentence, Michael. Start in business, stay in business and thrive in business. That would be a good statement, wouldn't it, to end? And we will wrap the show up right there. Thank you so much, Simon. And uh, tune in next month for the next session on the MS Monthly Podcast Show. Today's show has been sponsored by www.teameasycrane.co.uk. We help you build your business and grow recurring profits. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You have been listening to the M&S Monthly Podcast Show with Michael and Simon. If you have enjoyed listening today, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you never miss an episode.